Friends, we are getting close to Star Wars Kenobi. And on today's episode of Star Wars Rebels, Kenobi himself does not appear, but he's a very important character. We'll get into all that more as we talk about Season 3, Episodes 9, 10, and 11 after this commercial break, over which we have absolutely, completely, 100% no control. Welcome back. This is Matthew, your host. I use they, them pronouns. And I'm so glad because, as always, I'm joined by Riki and Sarah Hayashi. Say hello, folks. What do you think of these episodes? Hello. I am Riki. I use he, him pronouns. And I loved these episodes because I love Thrawn, as we have established. Yeah. Getting Hondo and Thrawn in the same set of episodes is just like peace to resistance. Yeah, it's super great. I'm Sarah, she, her pronouns, and I'm in love with Hondo Anaka. It's okay, we're a couple. You have your boyfriend, <laughs> Thrawn. I have my boyfriend, Hondo. They have nothing to do with each other. Although Hondo's apparently started some sort of thing with As Morgan, which I'd forgotten about and am surprised by. Yeah, though I'm now wondering, do we ever get Hondo and Thrawn appearing on screen together? I don't think we have, and I think that should happen at some point. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how they... Because they're like polar opposites personality-wise. Yeah. Yeah, I really like these episodes. I feel like we get a really nice mix of some kind of just day in the life, like working with Hondo. We get some very big information about what's going on in the Rebellion and moving that story along. And we get some very big stuff about the Force and Maul. And finally, the confirm- like last time, we were, we were sort of all wondering, so what did Ezra see? What did Maul see? And today we get confirmation that what both of them saw is this planet with two suns and Obi-Wan Kenobi. So especially as we get closer to Kenobi episodes, like that just got me really excited. Yeah. And speaking of As Morrigan, played by legendary actor James Hong, earlier this week, I guess, or maybe later this week, whenever you're listening to this, just check out the news because James Hong is finally getting a Hollywood star. <gasps> Yay. That's awesome. That's not, He's a great voice actor and, he has one of the voices that I know I've heard a million times before, but I don't pay as much attention to voice acting as I should. What else have people heard him as? I honestly can't think of any of his voice acting work off the top of my head, but I know his live action stuff. Most recently, he was the grandpa in Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is an amazing movie that you should go see right now. Pause the podcast, watch the movie, come back, dry your eyes. He was David Lopan in Big Trouble in Little China, which might be his most famous role. That makes sense. Yep, I know who that is. Okay. Awesome. Oh, yeah, to definitely check that out. All right, so let's jump into our first episode, which is the Wincathu job, which I think is very much supposed to be like the Italian job. You know, this is this is a classic heist episode. In it, the rebels form an uneasy alliance with Hondo, as Hondo promises them a shipment of proton bombs in return. However, the cargo ship that they're trying to rob is dangerously close to a heavy storm, making any salvage attempt hazardous. They enlist the aid of AP-5, who's the kind of new droid they've picked up, Chopper's buddy slash rival. But Kanan and Hera are worried that Ezra puts too much trust in Hondo. However, as they load the cargo onto the Ghost, they are attacked by Imperial Sentry droids. Both the Rebels and Hondo's crew manage to narrowly escape, but Hondo is unable to secure any of the treasure. In addition, Ezra comes to realize how little Hondo cares about his own crew or, quote, business partners. As our resident Hondo Stan, Sarah, what do you think of this episode? Uh, okay, honestly, it wasn't my favorite Hondo episode, but 
I, I don't know. Like, he felt a little out of character. Significantly, like, n- not nearly as much as the episode where he was, like, murdering children in Clone Wars. But I, I don't know if it was just, like, his pairing with Asmorgon or the fact that it was an episode designed to break Ezra away from his attachment to Hondo that mm-hmm. made me, like, a little bit like, this feels, this isn't as fun as I'm used to Hondo being. But still, I mean, I, any episode with Hondo is a good episode, so... How can I complain too much? I feel like Hondo being out for Hondo himself and pretty willing to throw under people the bus has been subtle, but definitely present throughout. Mm -hmm. And this episode, again, because they wanted Ezra to see it, I felt like they wanted the audience to see it. So they kind of made the subtext like front text and it it felt over the top to me as well. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good assessment for sure. I agree. One thing I also really liked is that and this is just one line, but to me, it hit me really hard. They had Ezra say the line because the whole rest of the crew was like, why are we trusting Hondo? And Ezra says, when have I ever asked you to trust me? And it didn't work out. And Sabine answers, of course, half the time. And it just to me, that's Ezra using a line that Hondo would use. Like it's Hondo's same logic of like, come on, you have to trust me. OK, forget about all the times you shouldn't have trusted me. But now you should trust me. Like it, it to me, it was a great way of showing like Ezra's kind of kind of becoming Hondo's apprentice even more than Maul's. as We'll talk about later. Oh, totally. And I mean, I would much rather watch Ezra become Hondo's apprentice. I think like there was a moment after their first interaction where Hondo invites Ezra, you know, to, to come onto his crew and sort of leaves it as this open-ended offer. And we've seen multiple times, right? Like clearly Hondo and Ezra are still keeping in connection. I mean, Hondo has Ezra's number on speed dial. He's able to call him up and say like, oh, hey, we accidentally found this ship that's just totally for no reason whatsoever accidentally floating in space. No one sabotaged it. What are you talking about? Let's go get some proton bombs. Wait, did somebody sabotage it? Yeah, as, as Morgan and um, Hondo like hijacked it, and the hijacking went awry, oh, which okay. is why they needed the uh, the ghost crew to come help them out. Because part of the point is Hondo doesn't have his normal crew, who at this point is all Ugnaughts, because his uh, original crew has already betrayed him from season uh, back in the Clone Wars and earlier seasons of this, and 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 I, the the implication is that. Actually, his crew was left behind on the ship when it started sinking and losing its orbit. Uh, and so that's, I think, one of the things that Ezra's kind of like, oh, yeah, this guy maybe is not, he doesn't take as good care of his crew as as I thought they would. Yeah, I definitely think Hondo sees the Ugnaughts as disposable and 100% saw his like weekly crew as disposable. Because, like, Hondo's always been out for Hondo. But I do think he has more of a soft spot for Ezra than he does for the rest of his random mm-hmm. band of associates. And especially Asmorogun. Like, I don't think he cares a lick about Asmorogun. This is just, like, a marriage of convenience. Yeah. In some ways, they're rivals, I think. And he, I think he would... There, there's, a, there's a couple moments where it seems like Asmorgan might not make it out. And Hondo is very pointed and saying, like, Oh, no, that's so sad. I... I will have to keep his share of the profits and I shall spend uh, no, this is what he says about uh, Melch, but he says, I shall spend his share wisely in his honor. You know, Hondo wants to put a good face on it, but I think he is very clear that if he's the only one to come out alive of this and thus he's the only one to get a profits, he's very OK with that. Yeah. And like Ezra calls him out on it, too. Right. Like there's, a, there's where he's going to leave Asmora again behind. <laughs> it's like if you leave him behind, you get all this treasure. Hondo's like, oh, didn't even think about that, even though he 100 percent was. But yeah, I mean, like earlier when we first met Hondo on Rebels. Like, Asmoragon was getting ready to, like, kidnap him and sell him for bounties. So, I mean, like, these two clearly don't, like, go way back or anything like that. 
Right. There was one great line from Ezra that I really appreciated. It it, it, it hit hard, but I think it, it, it made the point you're, it was going to make here is Hondo says, you know, you never disappoint me, Ezra. And Ezra kind of says under his breath, but I think it's clear that Hondo can see, wish I could say the same. You know, because I think this is really the episode where Ezra really had fallen for the kind of romanticism and like swashbuckling devil may care of of Hondo. And now Hondo is really letting him down. But I don't fully get why Hondo is letting him down. And maybe I am just blinded by my love. But Hondo has sacrificed his Ugnaught crew and also like apparently Melch. Turns out Melch is okay because Melch hid himself in a treasure box, which Hondo loves more than anything else in the world. But he hasn't really betrayed Ezra directly, right? I think he's shown that he's going to be there for Ezra. He's got a soft spot for Ezra. He doesn't necessarily care about large purple guy or colorful hair girl, as he so lovingly refers to Zeb and Sabine. But, like, I don't even think he calls it, like, colorful hair. It's, like, Mandalorian. Mandalorian girl, I think. Yeah. And purple. Purple purple, purple guy. guy. But I think he commented on her hair color. Anyway, irrelevant. I don't fully buy that he would have thrown Ezra under the bus the same way he did Melch. And I think part of it is by now Ezra is like in tune enough with like the desire to care for all living things that I think in Ezra's mind, if Honda was great to him, but terrible to everyone else, that's still not what he wants from Hondo. I get that what they were going for of the idea of Ezra becoming a little too invested in Hondo and then having to break away from that because I think that I think it's very intentionally supposed to mirror what's happening with Han- with Ezra and Maul. It it just felt like it was a little, like I like this episode but felt a little heavy-handed. And I I will certainly say if Melch had died, I think I would have felt very differently because I would've been like that now you now now you have made Hondo into just a really terrible person in a way that like yeah. even before like he threatened to k- kill children I don't think he ever actually did and like an episode later he was like I would never intentionally kill children and Ahsoka's like um weren't you just threatening to kill them yesterday and he's like yeah today yeah. is different <laughs> yeah yeah I agree and like it would have been weird to have like two back to back Hondo episodes where like an Ugnaught just gets thrown under the bus and like killed for plot reasons so i'm glad that melch didn't die i loved hondo's cheeky like friendship is the greatest treasure line at the end i don't know i don't necessarily dislike the ezra hondo relationship as much as the writers seemingly do especially because like in previous episodes we kind of had ezra playing hondo back the same way that hondo's playing the ghost crew. There was an episode where hondo was talking about like his finder's fee for the lasats that he was delivering to the ghost and Ezra says like well you were never gonna get the finder's fee in the first place so and Honda's like oh that's my boy right like there was a bit of this back and forth in their relationship and now it's just like Ezra's disappointed by his wacky uncle figure yeah yeah this highlights a lot of the problems I have with Ezra this season Mm. the way that he interacts with Hondo is similar to the way that he interacted with Kanan earlier when they were having trouble as just this this petulant teenager who you know the these parent figures for him he's just having conflicts with now because he's kind of grown out of them in his mind yeah i think that makes a lot of sense and i think because part of it is like ezra's been looking for someone to you know he he's he's recognized that kanan is not perfect and there's some things that kanan can't teach him and he's kind of looking for someone to be like that perfect father figure, you know, and like, is it, it's not going to be Maul. Now he's like, it can't be Hondo. And it, it's funny, too, because I never really thought about it until until we're talking about it now. 
you know, the Sith have very much this idea of the master and the apprentice. And, and it's baked in that one day the apprentice is supposed to kill the master because mm-hmm. that like that's the whole idea. And I kind of like that in a weird way, like the Sith have that, but also like the, the scum and villainy people have that because one day the apprentice is supposed to like outcon the master. Han knows going to be very proud, but also like, well, y- you got me. So I kind of like that little parallel there. Yeah. And like that's, I don't know. That feels on brand for Hondo to be like, ah, you've outwitted me and stolen my money. I'm so proud mm-hmm. of you, right? I've taught yeah. you well. I kind of agree with the whole, like, Ezra being... Ezra's acting weird this season. Ezra's had a bunch of weird stuff happen to him, so fair game, I guess. He is definitely lashing out, but more than that, I think it is, like, like the ghost crew, Hera especially, was, like, trying to get Ezra to see that, you know, Hond- Hondo doesn't care about his crew the way that we care about our crew. Like, we're a family to Hondo crew is disposable pawns or disposable Mm -hmm. pawns pardon me and yeah i think it was like that weird outside influence of like oh he's got to find out for himself i'm sure he will one day and it's like less than 20 minutes later that he finds out i don't know yeah so i don't think there's too much more to say about this episode i just want to quote one other line that i really loved which is when everything is kind of falling apart and ezra and and chopper are both trying to get off and I was just kind of trying to see if we can get people to to work together. And Chopper just takes off. And, <laughs> yeah. and he, he beeps something. And one of those times where, like, we don't actually know what Chopper says, but but the, the, the speaking character basically translates for us. Ezra says, what do you mean every man for him th- themselves? You're a droid! Which I, I just thought was a great, like, A, just reminding you how much of a, like, you want to talk about, like, willing to throw their friends under the bus at the first possible chance. That's Chopper to us. Yes. I don't know why Hondo hasn't tried to recruit Chopper to his cause. Uh, <laughs> but it's also just a great little moment between the two of them. Yeah. I Maybe that's also why I love Chopper so much. I don't know. Totally, right? Like, nobody's, nobody's telling Hera, like, to give up her reliance on Chopper. Anyway, I'm mm-hmm. salty. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's go to episode 10, our second episode for today in Inside Man. So when do you want to read the summary? Ezra and Kanan return to Lothal to scout the Imperial factory there, intending to destroy it. With the help of a local resistance cell led by Ryder Azadi, they manage to infiltrate the factory disguised as workers in order to gain intelligence on a new weapon the Empire is developing. However, Thrawn is also present in the factory and locks it down, suspecting rebel spies are sabotaging the vehicles being made there. Ezra Kanan and Chopper manage to steal the weapon data and are assisted by Callus, who reveals that he is Fulcrum. The three manage to escape the factory in stolen walkers and get the data to the rebels. After analyzing the data, they discover Thrawn is developing a new type of TIE fighter, the TIE Defender, which, unlike other TIE fighters, comes equipped with shields. Thrawn deduces that the rebels could not have retrieved the data without help from the inside. However, instead of hunting for the spy... Thrawn decides to wait, intending to use the spy against the rebels. Which, like, intending to use the spy against the rebels, vaguely threatening the spy in front of the spy that Thrawn 100% knows is the spy, and oh my gosh, the spy needs to get out of there right now. He doesn't know at this point. I feel like he's got a strong suspicion. I think this is proof that Thrawn has read Hamlet. (laughs) <laughs> because this is the play in which he wants to catch the conscience of the king. Mm. You know, I think I, I think he suspects that. And I think his hope is that he's going to put that pressure on Callus, and Callus will do something stupid. So at the, at the end of the episode, Callus, Price, and Thrawn are all chillaxing in Thrawn's office. Thrawn is going on about how there has to be an inside person. 
And then he's like, oh, and Callus, I talked to so many people and they said how convincing it was when the rebels assaulted you and every, you had multiple witnesses to corroborate that evidence. Right, Callus? Anyway, there's definitely a spy here, Callus. Which is just like so, so ominous. I don't know. Yeah. No, I disagree completely. Uh. I think that this is the first indication to Thrawn that there is an inside person. Mm -hmm. There's a mole in the Empire. And he's now going to go into his usual information gathering. And and no one is beyond being a suspect, including Callus. But I think to Thrawn, like, even Governor Price could be a suspect. Governor Price definitely seems super guilty. And, like, if... Callus hadn't revealed himself earlier in the episode I think my money would have been on Price mm-hmm. because as soon as Thrawn brings up the idea of a mole she's like what a mole impossible how could this possibly be Thrawn we have to go get the mole now it's really important that we get the mole Thrawn which just seems like really guilty behavior no I, I totally see that and I, yeah I think I think it could be either way and but just let's go back to the fact that Callus is the mole oh, is, yes. because <laughs> uh, that's an awesome reveal for those of you who are watching along if you are wondering why we it's not the only thing we've talked about in those spoiler sections, but the, especially this season, a lot of our spoiler sections have been looking at the early signs. Like, once you know that Callus is the mole, that whole scene where he helps Ezra and says, oh, tell Zeb that our, our debt is paid, and the way he reacts when Thrawn comes in and talks about Thrawn's civilian casualties, like, they just take on a whole new meaning. And mm-hmm. I've, I've really enjoyed watching this again, knowing now that Callus is Fulcrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I- yeah. So he he's saved Sabine at the Imperial Fighter Academy, mm-hmm. not Ezra. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, and also another thing that we pointed out in the spoiler section was that we stopped hearing Fulcrum's voice after that interaction with Sabine, and only hear characters talk about Fulcrum and no more Fulcrum messages because, like, if you know it's Callus and you listen, you can hear that it's Callus. Similar similar thing with Ahsoka. But yeah, there, we talk about other stuff in the spoiler section too. So if you want to like watch all of rebels before going back and re-listening definitely yeah do you all remember the first time you were watching this how you felt when you learned that callus was 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 uh fulcrum i don't remember i mean i was probably surprised yeah i i honestly i don't remember either i wish i did because oh gosh i think it's okay i think the reason i'm not remembering despite goldfish braining is i don't know like the the ice moon thing with he and he and zeb was just like such a strong connection that it seemed obvious that like callus was going to join their team at some point mm-hmm. so the fact that callus is fulcrum so he's clearly like helping out the rebels in this aspect i don't know yeah that seems like a very natural conclusion it was probably surprising to me at the time but i can't i can't remember i don't think it was a natural conclusion but i think it was written naturally Mm. I think all of the things that we've talked about in the past leading up to this have made this transition very easy because they've written it well. They've written his character well. They've written his interactions with other Imperials well. Even in this one, you know, as just before we find out that, you know, he admits that he's fulcrum to Ezra and Kanan, we see Thrawn sacrifice a factory worker. Jeez, yeah. Right. And not just to, any to, factory worker. Yeah. We see Thrawn sacrifice a factory worker to prove a point. And in the background, Callus's facial expression is very telling in that scene. He just has this look of shock and disgust that Thrawn would do this to a civilian. Yeah, and it's a really powerful scene because it's where 
Thrawn has come to realize that that workers are sabotaging these bikes, and one of the things that's happening is that they're uh, setting the bikes so that the, when the engines start to go, run too hot, they'll explode. And so he says to this person who's like, okay, this is the bike you last worked on, right? So presumably if it's not sabotaged, this person should so – it's kind of in that way a brilliant way to catch a saboteur. And and of course – and it was funny. I mean I remember watching it. The first time I felt this and the second time I'd forgotten about it. So I felt this all over again. And I kept waiting for Ezra to jump in or Kanan to jump in or the person to jump away from the bike and that start a fight. I forgot. And it's not just a random person. It's a named character, someone we know who's been part of the resistance. Having the show let that character die in a pretty brutal way, it hit me really hard. And it was, a, I think, a nice reminder of, yeah, Thrawn is – charming and educated and very smart and really really terrible and i i really appreciate getting to see that yeah so the the character sumar who we met i think season one is like a lothal resident was friends with ezra's parents ezra recognizes he and his wife and then ends up saving them and like their farmhand from being captured by the empire and it turns out now like they're being pressed into service after their farm has been raised this is a thing that thrawn discusses with sumar before telling him to you know get on the bike and watch it explode. I think what extra bothers me about that scene is like Sumar in the scene previous, the rebels are asking, you know, can you get us into this factory? And he says, well, are you trained mechanics in any way, shape or form? And Ezra and Kanan say no. And like, well, then you fit right in, right? So this is just like, this is a bunch of non-experts who are working on this machinery. And Theron is complaining that like this factory has very high failure rates. He's right. The factory is being sabotaged, but also this is like seemingly the only factory that's being run by locals because this is a thing that he admonishes Price about. The possibility that the fact that you just have untrained workers results in higher error is not what you've gone with, right? And like Sumar gets on the bike, it starts overloading. He says like, oh no, something's going wrong. I'm gonna have to shut it down. I don't know what's happening here, which I mean, like he does, he knows that he set it to explode, but like Thrawn does not take that as like, ah, I see, we're going to have you all test your things. This is a warning, right? Like there's a chance that Thrawn is wrong and he's willing to blow somebody up about it, which is upsetting. There's also a weird follow up to this. When another worker who was working on a walker, he tells the stormtrooper to make the walker walk forward and it just falls over. And I I felt like the biker sabotage was good because it's something where if you exceed a certain speed, they blow up. Mm-hmm. The walker just immediately falling over is not a great sabotage. That's just like a flawed construction. Yeah. And like, it's not even, you know, like, I don't think that the entirety of the factory workers are all intentionally sabotaging the machinery, right? Like, that's not what Sumar seems to indicate. It's like it's a small band of rebels led by Ryder Azadi who are infiltrated in this factory and causing these sabotages. So like, it's entirely possible. This is just a dude who used to be a farmer whose home is now being like completely screwed over by the empire and has no choice but to work in this factory. Doesn't know a thing about mechanics is told to make this like sophisticated two legged walking robot. Doesn't do a great job of it. And is now going to go be executed. Yeah. And I think you're kind of right. I think ruthless, I think, is the best mm. term for Thrawn, you know, and the it's the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. And, and it's funny, too, because I, I just did an episode a couple episodes ago with Rob McKenzie on the Thrawn books where I talk about how it feels like the author, Timothy Zahn, has kind of forgotten that Thrawn is supposed to be a villain because he, mm. he becomes more and more of a sympathetic character. The Thrawn in those books would never do this. 
like he's just has become much more of a like I don't want to have civilian deaths I don't want to I only want to do what I have to to help the empire and and it it was kind of nice to remember like no no actually Thrawn is still an amazing character but he he's a villain he's mm-hmm. he's been written as a villain it's fun to sort of see the kind of fantasy world of him as, as something else but this is the canonical Thrawn and I'm, those books are canon too but this feels much more accurate yeah and this is also pre-superhero or history degree Thrawn right because in the books isn't he like he can look at art and deduce like what you had for breakfast in a sort of Sherlock Holmesian set of super super sleuthing right and and he does that he does a little bit of that in this episode and clearly he's done some of that in the other episodes not to that extent though right like I feel like the the amount of his like analyzing culture and art history is still fully plausible here when Riki was telling me about the, about the Thrawn books I was defending it as like, yeah, you can tell a lot about a culture based on their artwork. I don't think this is that outside the realm mm-hmm. of plausibility. And then he read me a passage about like, it's like, I listened to the specific piece of music and found out that this person lives at this address and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, that might be yeah. a little far-fetched. Again, what he does in this episode is he has a very specific piece of art of graffiti mm-hmm. drawn by Sabine, one of the rebels. And he uses that to analyze their connection to Lothal and then deduces that they have a deep connection to this planet and they will always come back, is what I think right. he says. Yeah. Which is very yeah. different from the, the novel Thrawn looking at a piece of art from one species and deducing how to defeat that entire species in combat. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very true. I was just going to say, yeah, the whole, like, we keep seeing this one graffiti symbol wherever there's rebel activity, but it's particularly concentrated on Lothal. Right. Yeah, is it's, it's a fully believable type of analysis. And I also liked it because people who probably pay more attention to art have figured this out long ago, but this was the first time I really looked at it up close and realized what she is drawing as a phoenix is going to become the main rebel symbol that we all know and love. And mm-hmm. that was kind of really cool to, to, to see that spelled out. Yeah, like the rebel symbol is this sort of like morphing of the the Jedi Order symbol as well. Mm. But but yeah, and it also like I do really like the way that they show Thrawn caring about art because you know he has another I think is is it Constantine who he has come in and he says what do you see here and they reply like it's a retaining wall, which it is right that's what the graffiti's on. But then Thrawn goes on to explain the art. They're just saying that like the Empire doesn't super care about the art that these people are putting out they care about yeah the workforce and the machinery and what land they have and their resources and all that sort of stuff i believe that's lieutenant list list it was list you're right yeah other th- cool things i thought were really awesome as well as kind of very interesting character moments they don't go oh thrawn your fulcrum that's wonderful we love you come back it's very clear that both ezra and kanan and first don't trust him and then even when they do they're still like, this doesn't make up for how horrible you've been. And it reminds me a lot of, you know, Zuko showing up to meet the Avatar gang and saying, hi, Zuko here. And some of them just not wanting to forgive him, you know, quite, quite so quickly. And it's very funny, but it, you know, Ezra and Cal and Kanan kind of argue over which one of them should get to beat up Callus more because they're mm. clearly, they have to be, Callus wants someone to hit him in order to like make it look like he got defeated. But they're clearly having a lot of fun with it and doing much more than Callus wants. And I was thinking, like, that's fun. That's not very Jedi. Like, I don't think Yoda or even Obi-Wan would approve of what they're doing here. 
Yeah, I mean, it sort of reminded me of the time when we had Kanan and Ezra dressed as stormtroopers. And, you know, they're like, this is Kanan behind me, Zeb. You got to make this shot look good. And Zeb just like cracks his knuckles, winds up and socks Kanan. But yeah, there was so much malice behind this, right? And like, Ezra's the one who force pushes Callus through like a, a dis- glass display. I'm not entirely sure what that was. But it starts and it seems like Kanan is going to admonish Ezra. But instead, it's just like, I wanted to be the one to horribly injure him. Right. Yeah, which is, like you said, not very Jedi-like. But I think these are (laughs) our non-Jedi Jedis. So it seems... I could honestly see Anakin and Obi-Wan having an exchange like that. (laughs) For sure. And Anakin being the one just doing something a little too hard. And maybe Obi-Wan wouldn't have said, I wanted to do that. But say, like, that was a bit hard, wasn't it, Anakin? Sure, yeah. And I don't think Anakin is also the, like... ideal jedi either but yeah Yeah, like i i think obi-wan would have like kind of like not scolded anakin because he knows he can't change him which is its own question but he would have at least rolled his eyes and like come on anakin that's not the jedi way yeah some sort of pithy comment yeah or been like ahsoka don't learn from him (laughs) i think part of the thing here with not trusting callus is that you cannot just buy your way into the rebellion with a couple of y-wings you know Mm -hmm. that he helped provide with them earlier because i he could very well be a double agent or a triple agent or whatever the heck like he could be playing the long game to get the entire rebellion or get this entire cell so i think they are being very careful understandably given his history and given his cunning I think it's a show yeah. of respect to the agent that he is that they don't trust him. Yeah, and also, I mean, like, uh, Ezra and Kanan kind of allude to this where, you know, they're trying to make their escape and Thrawn's heading them off at the pass. Thrawn realizes that they're they're going to try and go out while these rebels are attacking from the east and attempts to stop him. And, and Ezra comments, like, oh, looks like Kanan sold us out. Um, nope, looks like Callus has sold us out. There's too many K names. We're, we're all getting wrong. I, I said Thrawn before when I meant. Uh, I know, Kallus, yeah. I know. It's the worst. Okay. There's too many names and they're too similar. Ezra says, like, looks like Callus has sold us out. And Kanan's like, well, no, let's not jump to conclusions yet. But I think an important part of why Ezra and Kanan aren't so super duper willing to trust um, Callus from the get go is like they don't know that he was on the ice moon with Zeb. They still think right. Zeb was just isolated there by himself. Yep. And like after this, they have this conversation with Zeb and he's like, well, I guess I must have seduced him. I mean, guess I must have rub rubbed off on him or something <laughs> like that. Um, and I think that this maybe... recruited. Recruited. <laughs> yeah. And he says accidentally. Like, he's not happy he did this. Yeah. He's happy. He knows what he did. He did so mm-hmm. willingly. They're in love and they're going to make kissy faces at each other. <laughs> But yeah, right, like not having that piece of information. I think this does seem like a totally out of left field move for Callus, right? Like, why would you suddenly go from being the man who is hunting us down to like secretly helping us? Don't buy it. Yeah. Yeah, I think after the incident with Sabine Mm -hmm. at the uh, flight academy they probably talked about it and like oh yeah the callus was on that moon too sorry i forgot to mention that no they didn't because at the end of this episode they they like bring it up to zeb and they're like ice moon alone huh zeb and he was like oh yeah i guess he was there with me and i accidentally recruited him so like this is the first time the rest of the ghost crew is finding out that zeb wasn't there alone but like i think i think ricky you're pointing out a good plot hole which is 
when he says to Sabine, tell Zeb we're even, Sabine would say to Zeb, what was he talking about? So yeah, I, I think they kind of, I think you're right. They should have learned before. Mm. But I also think Sarah's right that according to this, this is when they learn. So Right. But even learning this in however many episodes, it would be hard for Zeb to express the connection that they had mm. over Lasat and over, you know, the the rifles, the the staffs. The bow rifle. Yeah, yeah. the bow rifle, sorry. No, I think it's very true. I, I think that cultural understanding between them and the respect between them like it, it would be hard to express to the rest of the Phoenix Squadron. Yeah. The ghost crew. But I also think that the ghost crew has enough like love and trust for Zeb for if like Zeb to say like yeah, I think I recruited him and like he probably is on our side based on this interaction I had that they would trust Zeb. In a way they don't trust Ezra being like Hondo's fine, right? Well, and I even think I mean I think by the time Ezra smashes him through the glass, I think that point like they're not like handing him the keys to the em- to the to the rebellion, mm. but I think they do mostly believe that he is fulcrum but they still haven't forgiven him for like that's to me that's not we're pushing you through this glass and roughing you up because we don't trust you it's all right even if you're on your you're on our side you still were pretty awful to us when you weren't so we're not gonna let you off the hook that easy yeah for sure yeah and again i think it's that they believe he's fulcrum because he knew the code words but they don't believe that callus as fulcrum is not trying to set them up Quite or, yet. like they don't not believe that but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i got gotcha. you two two other quick things that i wanted to mention that i thought were really awesome in this episode during that whole thing where callus and thrawn are kind of dancing around each other a little bit and callus is uh, thrawn is talking about like I, we have must have a rebel spy i wonder who it could be there's organ music underneath it and it just it just felt so evocative of this very like wheels within wheels plots and plots and who will figure out the secret first mm. uh and i loved that and I also realized in this episode especially that Price is basically playing the Watson role to the Sherlock Holmes that is Thrawn, you know, and that she's the person who's always like, I don't understand. And so he gets to pontificate and explain very much like Watson does in the Arthur Conan Doyle books for for, for Holmes. And so I, I just like, OK, that's kind of cool the way they're using Price in that role. Completely. Yeah. And even just the way that she fawns over Thrawn, right, is very... Dr. Watson. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it like that before, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, so I love, you know, I love my starfighters and, and starships. Mm-hmm. So seeing the TIE Defender introduced here is fantastic. That is another thing that was brought in from Legends. And in fact, in Legends, it is Thrawn who designs and creates the TIE Defender, but that happens post-Return of the Jedi. So here we are seeing it introduced earlier on. And it is, as they say in this episode, a TIE fighter with shields, which in theory could have turned the tide of the war, because even though the Empire had starship superiority with star destroyers, it was really the Rebellion's use of you know X-wings and A-wings that was able to tip things in their favor despite being outnumbered in capital ships. Yeah. It's something we brought up before about how the Empire has this very, like, look, our soldiers are disposable. We'll win with mass combat. So why put shields on a TIE fighter? Because we just want, you know, as many of them as we can. And so the fact that this one has shields specifically, you know, Kanan realizes like that this could be a disaster. All right. Should we move on to our last episode, Visions and Voices? Yeah. Episode 11, Visions and Voices. Ezra is plagued by visions of Maul 
who approaches him and Kanan offering a deal. Maul threatens to reveal Chopper Base to the Empire unless Ezra accompanies him to complete a ritual in order to reveal the information they sought from the Holocrons. Maul and Ezra arrive on Dathomir, where they use dark magic to complete their Holocron vision, a desert planet with two suns, where what they both seek is located. As the ritual completes, Ezra and Maul are attacked by the spirits of the Night Sister clan. Kanan and Sabine arrive, but they are possessed by the Night Sisters and made to attack Ezra and Maul. Maul escapes, and Ezra offers himself to the Night Sisters to free Kanan, but then destroys the altar. As they leave, Sabine grabs the dark saber used by Maul. Kanan asks Ezra about his vision, and he reveals that his means to defeat the Sith and the target of Maul's vengeance are one and the same. The Jedi Master, Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi. Dun, dun, dun. That guy should get his own. Yeah, totally. And one thing that is really important here is that Ezra says, I don't know where this is. All I know is that's a planet with two suns. Maul never says that he knows where it is. And at first you might think maybe he doesn't know either. But I think it's very clear that he just doesn't say it because he doesn't want Ezra to know. Because he does say it's the planet where it all began. and Which is true. It's the first time he encountered Obi-Wan and, and Qui-Gon was on Tatooine. That was the first place he was sent to try and go hunt down Queen Amidala of Naboo. So that that's kind of a cool thing is that they're both have the same goal, but Maul now has more information than Ezra does. That's wild. I just thought Maul would have known about Tatooine because like that's where the Hut clan is based. And as the leader of Crimson Dawn, he would have been like aware of the other syndicates. Yeah, having only watched the prequels one time a long time ago. That's neat, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And it really <laughs> makes you question Luke's grumbling about Tatooine being a, a backwater nowhere. Because it seems like a lot of stuff happens on Tatooine. Yeah, they, that's one of those times where they've they've kind of pushed the limits of what the canon is supposed to hold. In a couple novels, they talk about the, the pod races that young Anakin wins are like some of the most important pod races in the galaxy. And you're like, Indianapolis isn't my favorite city, but like it's on the map in large part because of the Indy 500. Mm-hmm. Most people have heard of Daytona because of the Daytona races like. Yeah, yeah. so that, that part stretches credulity. But uh, overall, what, what do you think of this episode? Darksaber. Because basically all my, my thoughts are just chanting Darksaber over and over. And possibly also Night Sisters. I mean, I like Maul. It's cool that we're seeing Maul. I like that we're getting more of like Maul's origins on Dathomir. Even though we kind of already explored that in Clone Wars. So I'm glad that it's just hinting at it. But I, I love all the references to Maul's reign of on Mandalore. Including like the weird mural that he has of Satine. And of course the Darksaber. Mm-hmm. So I have done some research on this and the it's like a stained glass picture of sateen it's like an art deco picture i don't think it's stained glass it's like a mural right uh it i okay i don't know enough about art to tell you stuff to me it looks like stained glass and in fact if you go back and watch mandalorian episodes of the clone wars this is actually just a thing of Satine that was in the throne room and possibly like in her palace as well like there's there's a couple of examples of it so I thought when I was first watching it I thought it was something that Maul 
drew himself or something like that because it, it did have a weird kind of boxiness to it but i guess it's just a representation of mandalorian art and he maybe stole it yeah I definitely thought it was stained glass as well, but it may well be like there's an art form that looks like that. And here's what I mean. It, it, it does make sense that a picture of Satine would be in that in the royal sort of palace because I, I forget the exact role, but she's part of the royal family. I think is she the niece of Sabine? No, S- yeah, Satine, Satine is Sabine's aunt. Oh, sorry, I'm getting the names wrong. So yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, so <laughs> Sabine, it, it makes sense that there would be art of Sabine in the palace because she is part of the royal family in that she's the the niece of Satine who, but that's who the artist right. the artist Satine not Sabine their names are too similar and i hate it it does look like it's Maul's representation of perhaps stained glass which does have like a sort of cubist art decoy vibe to it which is like the strange boxiness so Riki's pulled up a still here of the art of Satine which is this sort of like pseudo cubist rendering of Satine, mm-hmm. but the image in the like Night Sister Cave doesn't look like a cave painting that Maul has done on the wall to sort of recreate the throne room, including giving this little like altar to the dark saber, because it's yeah. like so. <laughs> Riki has pulled up another picture, and it looks like it's this recreation of this painting. Mm-hmm. It is kind of fun that like right after an episode about Thrawn, now we're spending so much time questioning sort of the meaning of these different pieces of art <laughs> and stuff like that. There are probably many reasons why Maul would want to have that art, but we know he's obsessed with Obi-Wan Kenobi. Mm-hmm. Obi-Wan Kenobi had this deep connection to Satine. And so that's one more reason why there might be some kind of a overlap there. Well, he loved her and Maul knew it. And he murdered Satine right in front of Obi-Wan. Yeah. And so like that was that was his greatest moment of triumph over Obi-Wan. So I think it makes sense in a sick way that he would want to remember that and memorialize it. Right. Well, and like just beyond that, like remembering his rule over Mandalore was right. like a pretty powerful time in Maul's life and he's yeah. kind of fallen from that. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And and the fact that he still owns the dark saber but refuses to wield it mm. is is also telling, I think, about his defeat on Mandalore. Yeah. And maybe represents that he does not feel worthy of picking up this weapon anymore. Yeah. yeah because, like, as we learned in The Mandalorian, you have to win the Darksaber through, like, ritual combat. Right. And I don't think that Maul did that necessarily. No, yeah. he did. He did, but it he... wasn't like, it was like him and um, his brother, right? He no, he defeated Pre Vizsla in combat. So Pre Vizsla was the ruler of Mandalore. Like they had a coup and took it over from Almec, and then Maul and Almec made a deal in prison, and then Maul challenged Pre Vizsla, defeated him, picked up the dark saber, and said, "I rule Mandalore." Mm. Right. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's really interesting, and I feel like we get a lot more about Maul's character in this, especially how much he's not just mustache twirling evil Sith. You know, he he clearly is manipulating Ezra and wants Ezra to, you know, help him and is willing to throw Ezra under the bus once Ezra rejects him. But I think it's very clear that he has like he actually wants he thinks that he is best for Ezra. It is not just a mwahaha, I'll bend his will. And, and like the way he keeps talking to Kanan about like he's my apprentice or he's our apprentice. 
I don't know how intentional this is. Maybe it's just because we're, we're talking about them so much. But I feel like there's a weird mirroring of – I've talked, said this before – between Hondo and, and Maul in terms of both wanting to kind of adopt Ezra in this way and both thinking like they're the best one for, and Ezra being tempted by both of them. Yeah. I don't think Hondo's trying as hard Agreed. as Maul is. Yeah. Right? And I also think that if Hondo had Ezra aboard his crew, he'd be like, ah, a child I now have to look after. Mm-hmm. Fun. Whereas I think Maul genuinely, desperately wants Ezra to be yes. his apprentice. Yeah. At one point when he's trying to convince him that they could go together and, you know, defeat Obi-Wan. He doesn't use those words, but defeat Obi-Wan, defeat Sidious, take over mm-hmm. the galaxy. Mm-hmm. He uses the words, you know, we could have been brothers or some phrasing like that. Right. And that harkens back, of course, to Anakin and Obi-Wan on Mustafar. It also harkened back to Savage Opress, his biological brother, who was his Maul's apprentice right. in the Clone Wars. So to me, that to me in this episode was the most powerful moment was when he says we could have been brothers. Right. And that exemplifies what Maul wants out of this relationship. Especially since he takes him back to Dathomir, where as he specifically says, like, this is where my siblings lived. You know, the Night Sisters, but also all the all his brothers. And I liked the parts on Dathomir, but it reminds me that I feel like, like sometimes, you know, you introduce a great character and then kill them off. And it's sort of like, oh, but they could have been so much more. Like to me, Killmonger in the MCU is like that. To me, the Death, the Night Sisters are introduced and then fairly quickly are all wiped out in this, you know, great battle with, with the droids and, and Dooku and Grievous. And I feel like this is one of many times where I'm really feeling that loss because we got like the Night Sister ghosts and they're okay, but they don't really have much character development. If Mother Talzin was still living on Dathomir and like every time someone went back, they had to bargain with her and she just had such a great dark side, but not Sith and kind of she has her loyalties, but she's not good necessarily. That whole scene, I just kept thinking this would be so much better if there were Night Sisters still alive. Yeah, I agree with you as far as like the whole like the killing off of the characters is concerned, especially since we're dealing with like the Bendu and this idea of the Force being more than just the Jedi and the Sith, right? There right. are other Force users in the world. Maul references, you know, that the, the Night Sisters were powerful witches; they had powerful magic, and the Empire just came and destroyed them all the same. And from the one aspect, I think it really highlights how bad the Empire is, right, and how ruthless the Empire is willing to be that they're just like annihilating entire populations mm-hmm. but yeah it, it is a little disappointing to not have some fun night sisters hanging around with their fun echoey voices right and just like being generally awesome like i, I really i really like the night sisters um mm-hmm. i love their their plot line definitely in clone wars definitely yeah. right any other last points on this episode there's some other stuff in maul's cave that i hope is are like easter eggs mm. like he's got a whole treasure trove in there of things and I, I noticed them, but I couldn't really make out what they were or what they represented. So if you are listening to this and you know, like if you have a top five things that you missed in Maul's cave, <laughs> then send that in to us. Yeah. Or, I mean, I know I've often compared Ezra to Aladdin, Maul to Jafar, etc. But is, is Maul maybe Princess Ariel with his treasure trove of collections? Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? He just wants legs. Yeah. Yes. It's all coming together. I want to be where the Jedi's die. I want to kill Obi Wan or maybe kiss him. Like, yeah, that (laughs) that feels very, very fair. Oh, if you don't think there's sexual fanfic, yeah. 
Oh, oh, there is. Yeah. Oh, there is. There's a great meme that was going around for a while, and it's about the the superheroine has finally like captured the villainess, and the villainess says, "I have unleashed a poison on out into the world, and it's going to kill everybody. And the only way that you can get the antidote is to kiss it off of my lips." <laughs> and the heroine look it, thinks for a second, and goes, "You know." If you wanted to kiss me, you didn't have to do all this. And the villainess says, I'm awkward, okay? <laughs> and you kind of get that feeling from Maul. Like, yes, Obi-Wan ki- almost killed him. He hates Obi-Wan. He loves Obi-Wan. He, you know, I think, and that's a big yeah. part of like, why he wants to be an apprentice to Ezra, you know, to, to kind of out Jedi Obi-Wan in that regard. Yeah. I mean, Obi-Wan makes him weak in the knees. Yeah. Literally. Because yeah. he cut his legs off. Um. Anyway, yeah, you know, no, I totally agree. Like, he's obsessed with Obi-Wan. And it's, yeah, he killed his girlfriend. It's like, oh, now you don't have a girlfriend anymore. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a shame. You're single, eh? Hmm. Definitely. But yeah, if uh, if you know more about what was in his treasure chest, definitely write into us. That's a good way to talk about all of our contact information is on theethicalpanda.com. You can find our email, our Twitter, our Facebook posts, all that stuff. You go to theethicalpanda.com. Tell us what you think about what's in the in the cave. Tell us what you think about the episodes in general. Do you love them? Do you hate them? What do you think of our analysis? We'd love to hear your opinions. So, Riki and Sarah, any other kind of last comments from you all or, or things you want to plug? And then we'll wrap up. No, we're good. May the force be with you. Live long and prosper, etc., etc. May the force be with you. Live long and prosper. Be gay, do crime. And have yes. a good day. Yay. Be gay, do crime. Kenobi. Kenobi.